What Guanawanaru Sewa Guego. Greetings, love, and respect to all of you. On this special edition of the Auntie's Dandelion, we visit with rematriation activist and media creator, Galun Yanua's Michelle Shenandoah from Oneida Nation. Michelle recently traveled with a Canadian Indigenous delegation to the Vatican to address the ongoing devastation of the Catholic Church's residential schools on Ongwehongwe people. Michelle carried with her a beautiful, empty cradle board from our Rodinishoni lands and presented it directly to the Pope. I saw his face light up and I was thinking to myself, oh geez, maybe he thinks this is a gift. I need yeah. to be really clear. You know, as I'm, I'm handing this over to him, I said, this is for a point of reflection on all of our children that were lost and impacted by these schools. And I will be back to retrieve this board tomorrow. In the first hour of this episode, we look at the powerful influences on Michelle's life that prepared her to enact this historic gesture. Hour two, we hear the backstory of Michelle's meeting with the Pope. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul, an arts and theater organization that, like Michelle, is focused on the importance of dismantling the doctrine of discovery. And the organization is based in the Shenandoah Valley, a region named after Michelle's ancestor, Chief John Shenandoah. We are Yeti Nistaha Ne Degarunyaganare, the Auntie's Dandelion. We're dedicated to revitalizing our communities through stories of land, language, and relationships. Slow down and take your time with this episode. These narratives are important reminders of how we all can be speaking truth to power and that we all benefit when you listen to your aunties. Um, Michelle Shenandoah, um, member of the Oneida Nation Wolf Clan, and um, I'm uh, from our homelands. Uh, some of you might know our territories are in three different areas. Um, these are people who were sort of pushed out and relocated but uh, some of us stayed behind and so my family is one of those so I grew up in our our home territories and just happened now to live in the heart of our confederacy yeah. with my husband and our kids so we're in Onondaga Nation territories um, so yeah I'm here and I'm so excited to have you here in rematriation offices and you know have the aunties dandelion to be here it's just pretty awesome it really is awesome the coming together and um, just talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing with rematriation and maybe even starting with what does re rematriation mean yeah well <clears throat> let's stop using the word repatriation right you know? And stop spell correcting it. On uh, yes, autocorrect. <laughs> Come on now. Yeah, we're trying to get that, you know, on the digital space acknowledged. And um, so you can find us on uh, the Wiki Encyclopedia, our Wiki Dictionary, and made sure that we're, um, we're up on there. But rematriation, returning the sacred to the mother. <sighs> so rematriation really comes um, as a word and a process uh, out of our traditional midwifery. And so I really learned about this and, and the roots coming from 
from within that space and you know when we have our babies we return the placenta and umbilical cord mm-hmm. back into the land and and just keeping that really that connection between our babies and and earth and mother earth and you know giving back to that life that gives us life <clears throat> So rematriation started to be used in some other spaces and working with our uh, clan mother, who likes to be called Mama Bear, mm-hmm. Louise uh, McDonald Hearn. And um, she was using rematriation a lot in, in many different spaces. And so I said, we really need to make sure that this word has a definition. We want to have it in the dictionary and for people to be able to know what it means. So I said, tell me everything that you think about it. Mm-hmm. And we spent a good half an hour, 45 minutes on the phone, and she went into sort of really deep concepts and philosophies and thinking about rematriation. And I said, let me call you back. And spent a little time looking at the word repatriation, Mm -hmm. which is returning a person or object back to its original owner or to its original land and very much kind of grounded in this like patriarchal sense flipping that and looking at it from our matrilineal sense and and who we are and what does this work encompass and what does rematriation mean in our lives and recognizing that we are sacred beings, right? We're here um, for a sacred purpose. And whether we realize it or not, we've all been endowed with these gifts that Creator has given to us and we're here on the sacred land and 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 in the work that is being done and it really has again like i said it came out of you know midwifery it came out of this place of women and if you look around now you can see rematriating acts by indigenous women across the world and it's really become an act and a movement in which we are stepping back into our sacredness, stepping back into our power and our place of knowing of who we are. And so that's what I see and feel about rematriation. So to simplify it and to put it out there so that it can be, you know, in the dictionary and can be understood on some level by folks who are unrelated to us um, and our cultural ways is, is thinking about it of returning the sacred to the mother. And there's a lot there mm-hmm. for people that don't understand or don't know to investigate and explore and find out what does that mean and how can they bring that into their lives without appropriating it. Let's be very clear. Yes. I want to make sure, like, you know, <laughs> understanding that this is um, really um, an indigenous led movement that's happening really organically mm-hmm. and um, because we're it's time whatever it was that shifted in this universe it was like our women heard it felt it and it's not just our women our, I mean our men feel it too they yeah. know it it's happening but it's also creating space for them to come and to protect that preciousness that sacredness of our women of our children and the future of our nations right so that's that's what's happening and um, so we're really here um, at rematriation I founded a nonprofit. as a media company, really. And we kind of first focused in on being like a magazine, but as we've come to grow and we've come to evolve, we now recognize that the work we do is really elevating the voice of Indigenous women and the work that we're doing. And so we're now rematriation as an organization. And our mission really is to support um, this movement of rematriation and all the work that's being done to make it happen. I think you, as a woman, no matter what race or 
ethnicity you are, whatever your background is, I, I feel like it's impossible not to hear the call because the call is coming from our Mother Earth, yeah. right? She's really the one reminding us all right now that we have to pay attention. We have to change the way that we're living. And we know as Nguahua people, as indigenous people, that <clears throat> there's knowledge that we have about how to live in balance. And for some people, it may seem so simple that they've overlooked it. They, yeah. they don't understand or don't want to believe that it can be so simple as waking up and giving thanks to all of life every day. But how that shapes your worldview, unless you do it, you're not going to feel it. And understanding that we have to give back, right? We have to give back to the land. We have to ask for permission. We have to make our own offerings. We have to give our thanks. And Mother Earth will provide for us. We are provided for everything that we need. But there's also that reciprocity. And I think that's the big part that humanity is not understanding, right? It's take, 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 take. Mm -hmm. And there's no end in sight. Right, not realizing. I, mean, I think there's an awareness, there's a consciousness that, okay, you know, resources are limited, but I'm not willing to change my life ways. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm still on this path for success. I still want to have all of you know the gadgets and the what's it and the who's it, and not recognizing where does it stop. Right. Um, I was fortunate enough to. Um, be um, at a wonderful conference last week uh, called IWOW, Indigenous Women of Wonder. <laughs> and uh, myself and Jody Potts-Joseph and Winona LaDuke were some of the keynote speakers, but there were speakers the whole time from women there in the, in the communities and of Northern California, and they just did an amazing job. And Winona LaDuke, she was the last speaker, and she was really kind of talking about, like, you know, this, this consumption, that it's like, uh, it's an addiction, it and, is an addiction. And addiction is just something that people can't overcome, right? Like that's, we see it in in so many areas of, of our lives and friends and family. And, and, and this consumption is an addiction, yeah. right? So, <clears throat> you know. Probably how the do, biggest shared addiction yeah, that right. we have in the world right now. And, it, and other people that don't have that want to be that, like in countries that are not, these consumptive countries, yeah. that's the aspiration is right. to be that. Right, yeah. yeah, to be like the American culture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is really, it's just sad. It just, it, it takes and exploits and just doesn't give back. Our greatest life giver right now is is giving everybody some really big lessons. And the pandemic was one of those. And, you know, she gave us all a really big time out and said, you all need to reflect you all need to rethink your values and who are you and what are you doing on this planet. As humankind, did we learn the lessons? I don't know. That's yet to be seen. I think everybody's kind of started emerging and it's like, okay, what is this new world? What is this new reality? Who do we want to be? And I think now in this time and space is the place for Indigenous knowledge to come forward. And I do believe and I feel it that there is an awareness that, hey, maybe these Native folks kind of know what they're talking about over here. Let me listen, right? But it's still trying to get that attention. People are caught up in their phones and their laptops and getting on with their lives and getting back to what they knew before. But there's a shift 
And I think people just kind of can't escape it. Our people have been saying all of the same things for generations. Mm -hmm. And so here within rematriation, one of the things that we're doing is really helping to elevate and lift that voice. And also to lift that voice from the perspective of our women. Because when you look throughout history, um, you really don't see the voice of our women being acknowledged as much. And because it is our Mother Earth who is speaking, as women, we're the first ones to feel that mm. and to hear that just based on that pure connection of being life givers. Yeah. I think you touched on something really important in saying that people don't really want to believe that it is as simple as this act of gratitude and our original ceremony is the Ohandagari Wadekwa, or the words that come before all others, where we're giving thanks to all of the beings, not for mm-hmm. all of the beings, and, and how that rewires our brain and puts us in a very different place of intention. Just talk about your, your background and, and your family, and the influences that swirl around you for you to be walking with this knowledge and philosophy and action, actually. Well, it's it's sort of hard to say, like, as if I started at some place because I was born into it. Yeah. And, you know, born as an Oneida woman and being raised in our territories and, you know, my family, um, you know, made, made a choice. I know that there was like a, a generation back where my great-grandmother had decided to become Christian. Right. And so then some of her kids, you know, were Christian. But my grandmother, she chose to go back and she actually became one of our clan mothers. Okay. And that happened before I was even born. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what I was born into. And uh, my grandfather, actually, who passed away before I was born, he was a pine tree chief at Onondaga. And my grandmother really worked diligently in her life to bring our people back to our homelands. Because as I had mentioned, a lot of our people were pushed out. There were so many settlers and squatters and New York State taking our lands. And we had all of 32 acres left to us out of millions and millions and millions of acres of lands that were Onyoteaka lands. We it all kind of came down to 32 acres that were never seeded. So back in, I don't even know, like I'm thinking maybe in the 60s or 50s, right there, there were families that decided to move back to that territory because it was left in one family's name. So my family through the generations had moved in with the Onondagas. So that's where they spent I don't know how many generations, it, you know, probably since the early 1800s. And so we spent <clears throat> time there. Um, but by the time that I was born, our family was out in Oneida on our territory, right? And so that's the environment I grew up in and <laughs> revitalizing ourselves and who we are. And and our community had gone through some really tough times to figure out, you know, how did how did we want to be? And and the consensus came to that we wanted to be traditional. We wanted to be longhouse and that we needed to bring our fire back to our community and building the longhouse. And my grandmother was really instrumental in bringing that there. And 
At the same time, our land claims were also ripe, right? So my great-grandmother, who lived at Onondaga, um, but she um, and her sister um, had worked a lot on, on our land claims and getting that into the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So we had one of the very first land claims that went up to the Supreme Court. Oh, I didn't know that. And so when I was little, here I was going with my grandmother and my mother. My mother, she became a faith keeper in our nation. And I would go to these meetings with them and, and they're always talking about our land claims. And, you know, and I decided at the age of 10, okay, I want to be a lawyer and work on our land claims when I get older. That's, that's what I'm doing. And so I had always had my sights set on becoming a lawyer. And flash forward many years, and that's basically, you know, I end up going to law school. And the crazy part is, is my very first year of law school is when the Cheryl versus Oneida Nation decision came out. And that decision is where Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited the doctrine of discovery against the Oneidas. And all these years later, I feel that. I really, really feel that. Um... And, you know, she, you know, there was harsh language in that case. I mean, I encourage people to read it. She talked about fires of sovereignty growing cold. Really, like, it was just terrible and saying that so much has happened in the last few hundred years that they can't disrupt all the settlement and expectations of the counties and the state and all this other craziness. And so that's my first year of law school, right? And so that case shut the door for all land claims through the court system in New York State for the Haudenosaunee. The Oneida Nation, right? Well, you know, my grandmother, great-grandmother got our case in the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says, okay, uh, yes, New York State, you know, you illegally took the lands from the Oneida Nation, so now you need to settle with them. So we spent... 40, 50 years going back and forth with New York State to settle the case. And they just wanted to offer money. And we're like, no, it's not about money. It's about the land. They don't want to give the land back. And it just went on and on. And so this is what I grew up in, right, is all that process of negotiation and going in and out of court and all of and, and all of that. Um, so then starting out with little smoke shops and then bingo halls and then casino, right? Mm -hmm. So now we have money. And the next strategy was to just buy back the land, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, New York, you're not going to give it to us. We're just going to buy it back. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but with that, the the leadership within the United Nations also said, well, we're not paying taxes on it, but here's what we're going to do. Instead, we're going to give the county or the towns a financial gift, Okay, so they're not going to lose money, mm-hmm. but we're not paying taxes. Okay. We're going to give you a financial gift in lieu of taxes, and they probably made out about the same. But they didn't like the fact that we weren't following their process. Yes. Wow. And so this city of Cheryl brought a case against us. So it's actually a tax case. Oh, okay. And uh, that's the case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court and was decided and basically the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You know, you have to pay the taxes on it. And there were some other strategies that were implemented. And then, you know, the land quickly got put into trust. So it became under the arm of the BIA, which I don't know which is, 
<laughs> which, which is, part? I don't know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, yeah. um, wow. you know, so it's technically still kind of out of, out of a, the realm of being taxable, you know, if you will. Okay. Um, but... Uh, nonetheless, that case was really damaging. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you yeah. know, oh, she's such, you know, about women Notorious. and da da da. And, and I'm just like, no, she cited the doctrine of discovery against our people. And if you also link all of the damage that has happened to our people and, and to our women, the role of our women. It's just astounding. And so, I don't know, did she know what she was doing? She, I have no idea. I've, I read a, an article that said, you know, years later, it was the most regretful case that she had ever decided. Wow. One and, would hope. But then, you know, you flash forward and she was involved with the, um, the um, uh, case in Oklahoma, the... With the Muskogee The Creek. most recent one. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, where they basically said, you know, Oklahoma is really native land, right? So was that her acting out on the guilt from the Oneida case? I don't know. <laughs> but I take a look at all of this. And at first, I was really, once I started to really understand the implications of her citing the Doctrine of Discovery, I mean, I was really just like, wow, like pretty, pretty upset by all of that. And, you know, as I flash forward, however many years we are now, um, what is it? We're in 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where are we? <laughs> so how many, how, how many years? 17 years later or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually now, the outcome and the implications and the effects that had on all of our nations that, you know, I'm not happy about. But mm-hmm. what I am grateful for now is that she actually did cite it in 2005, and she that means doctrine of discovery. Yep. Uh huh. Oh, it's in there. It's yeah. in the case because of the fact she did cite it. That means indigenous peoples all around the world can say, "Look, it's real. It's live. It's active." Right. So the doctrine of discovery is part of the papal bulls that was uh, declared by uh, the Pope in 1493 that mm-hmm. gave right for European explorers to come over here to the Americas and rape and pillage and claim the lands and do whatever they wanted with the people because they didn't, they did, we weren't Christians. Mm-hmm. So in the eyes of the church, we didn't have a soul and we didn't have a right to anything, right? We didn't exist. We weren't people. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, that's the start of a long genocide over the last 500 years. Mm-hmm. And so, because she cited it in 2005, now our people get to say, look, it's real. Because the public would otherwise say, oh, that's from so long ago, right? Even, you know, the United States uses it in very early cases, like 1823, Johnson v. McIntosh, and it becomes their basis to claim land all in the United States. But even 1823 seems pretty far away. So for most, you know, Americans, they could say, oh, that's so long ago. Like, how does that have any impact on today? Well, it does. It, it puts a lens over people's eyes, yeah. ears, thinking to be entirely racist and invisibilize us. Yeah. To do whatever they want still to this day. And so that case is like current law that any of our nations can point to now. And say, no, look, it's real. Mm-hmm. It's living, right? So the way I see it is like she breathed life back into it. 
is that door still shut for the land claims of the Haudenosaunee now? It's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's perspective. Never say never. I'm sitting here with this mug in my hand. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is a Tuscarora Woodworks um, mug. I just mm-hmm. received it as a gift yesterday. It says land back on it. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I realized through my life, you don't necessarily need to go to the courts for land back, right? And I was part of... Um, a bigger movement that was happening here among our Haudenosaunee women to rekindle our own fire as women. And back in 2017, when the solar eclipse traveled over Turtle Island, we were we gathered together at Ganondagan and really spent time in um, workshop and ceremony. And man, it just like pulled down all those walls that were between us as as people between nations and really started this process of healing. And, um, you know, as I've come to understand, that was really called forward by um, our sister, Jigon Sase. Mm-hmm. And she was really very instrumental in the formation of our Haudenosaunee Confederacy and bringing about peace between our nations that were at war one time. And her role you know, the title that she held was passed down over time. And in the 1800s, you see that just disappear, right? It just kind of vanished. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's like one of those other signs of this implications of the doctrine of discovery, right? Like our women disappear, our people disappear, our culture disappears. And in the eyes of the greater public, you know, we disappear. And that's what it does. It invisibilizes and, mm-hmm. and eradicates. And and that's a genocide, right? Mm-hmm. So looking at how, how do you define, how do we define ourselves? And, you know, my mom used to remind me, she would say, Michelle, it's great you want to go to law school and to learn this education. She said, but remember, if you get sworn in as an attorney, the moment you get sworn in, you stand there and you hold your hand up and you agree to uphold the laws of the United States. Right. She said, you are agreeing to uphold the very laws that are designed to eliminate us. Yeah to kill us, to invisibilize us, right? She said, remember, as Haudenosaunee people, we have our own laws. And those are the laws that we have to uphold. Mm -hmm. And I heard her. And those words stayed with me. Was that before you went to college? Yeah, before and all throughout, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and... and, um, we're young, we're determined, and we want to go do something. And, and I know that I was meant to go get that education. Yeah. I actually never became an attorney, mm-hmm. you know, and it was never sworn in. Um, Didn't and, take the bar. Oh, I took it. Oh, you took it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you still have to, like, go through an actual process where you're sworn in, right? Okay. So it's just part of the process. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I never... I, I didn't I didn't make it to that because as um, you know I was on my way to take the bar again. I was a single mom at the time, mm-hmm. 
And um, I was doing some consulting for, you know, some of our nations across the country, different nations, tribes. And um, and then I was also um, working for a law firm locally that had been, you know, someone that had worked with um, uh, the Onondaga Nation. And they, they did, they were, uh, the nation was a client of theirs. And so we had a lot in alignment, which was, which was really great. Um, but as I was like starting to like get myself ready to, to prepare for that again. Um, you know, I knew something just wasn't in alignment, right? Here I am, I have a little three-year-old boy. Um, actually, no, he was five at the time. Um, he was five and here I am running around, working, 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 working and thinking, you know, I just, I wanna be a mom. I wanna spend more time with him. And I literally would rush him to school in the morning, drop him off and then go work a full day, pick them up. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be like, okay, hurry up, eat your dinner. Okay, hurry up, go to bed. And okay, get up, hurry up, run to school. And I wasn't spending mm-hmm. any real quality time with him and I could feel it. And for some reason, I kind of kept thinking, well, if I get this next contract or I start working more, I'm going to have some more money. And I kept thinking that I would have an opportunity to spend more time with him. But what I came to realize is that the next contract and the next this and the next that really just meant more responsibility, more pulls on my time. I was traveling all over the country and mm. I was just feeling like, oh, I just want to be here with my baby. With, with my baby. No. Right. Exactly. Um, and so one day I'm taking him to, to school and uh, a car just came out of nowhere, literally just hit us right on the side and brought us to a full stop. And then they took off. They left the scene. And, you know, next thing you know, we're both getting taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And thankfully, my son was fine. Oh, my gosh. But for myself, I suffered a really severe concussion. And I was completely taken out of work for like two and a half years. Oh my God. Couldn't do that work. I couldn't do all that crazy fine-tuned strategizing that law like, you know, you know, makes your brain kind of do. And then, you know, I was also having a hard time pulling up memories. I was like, literally like, what did I do last night? Oh my gosh. I'm there now as I'm 47. I'm like, what did I do yeah, last night? It's different now. It's <laughs> <laughs> different now. But, but even then I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't remember what did we do yesterday? What what it I'd have to have people give me prompts and I say, Oh wow. So I had to spend all this time in the dark and in the quiet and literally just calm my mind. And that was the only way I could get through it because anything like light and sound and all this experience sort of stuff, I just I couldn't process. It would just it would make all my symptoms become worse again. And um it was really funny because this is at the same time I started dating my, you know, now husband. Mm -hmm. And it was crazy because I feel like that accident was meant to be. Yeah. It brought me to really hearing myself and my spirit and the words my mom told me, you know, and, and some of our aunties around us were like, remember, everything happens for a reason. Reflect on this, you know, maybe you weren't on the path you were supposed to be on. Mm-hmm. And they're absolutely right. I, I wholeheartedly believe that now because I here I was gearing up. Okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do it. So I, I took that time and I created space for myself to fall in love. Mm-hmm. I don't think on that path I would have even had space for a relationship, right. you know, and now I have the love of my life and just so in love 
super happy, super thankful. It created space and opportunity. It created space and opportunity for me to be a mom to my son and to welcome three more children into my life. Yeah. Right. So soon we were we were married and taking the time to reflect and what am I gonna do? And I had a real realization. Yeah, that's not where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. That that's not it. And, and the crazy part is my type A personality was like, okay, well, what is it then? What is, what am I supposed yeah. to be doing? What is it? Tell me, you know, okay, We're creator, pivoting. tell me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, show me. And I literally, uh, you know, the more I kind of push like that, like the farther it all seemed to make sense. And I literally just had to let go. Mm-hmm. I had to let go and I had to have fun. I had to just enjoy life. And the crazy part is, is the way my brain was working, all that fine-tuned strategy kind of stuff, that's future-looking. Yeah. And all the other stuff was the memories is backward-looking. And I had this realization after like maybe like eight months of like realizing, okay, this concussion's not really healing like the way I want it to. Mm -hmm. I had a moment where I was like, whoa, like this is zen. Like I'm in the moment. I can't think about the future because it makes my brain hurt. And I can't start thinking about all the past and all the things that happened and rehashing it. Like, it's just gone. Yeah. And I'm here. I'm here with you. I'm here in this moment. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm going to have fun. I'm just going to enjoy it. And that's when life just started to really shift for me mm-hmm. and in a really good way. Next thing you know, I'm starting to do some work with with a lot of our women centered around healing. Next thing you know, we're doing a big gathering at Ganond again. Next thing you know, this dream that I had from like my 20s to you know, have a magazine for Indigenous women to be able to share and story and what just create that space. It all just started to happen and unfold. And no doubt in my mind that I'm now on that path that I've I'm supposed to be on. And I really believe that no experience is wasted. So all those other things that I did, even though like being an attorney wasn't the path for me, yeah. that education was. Yes. Because now it's really helpful for the work that I do. Yeah. I can talk about the doctrine of discovery. I can know what those laws of the United States, what they stand for. I can see through them. I studied it. You know, I didn't just get my JD because when that ended, I finished my law degree. Then I went and I got a second law degree. The, The economy of 2008 crashed. That morning, my son was born. It was crazy. Right in the middle of Manhattan, here I am, you know, giving birth to my little baby boy. And I had no clue all these financial institutions were falling. (laughs) Yeah. Right there in Manhattan. around you. Falling. Uh You know, it was his little spirits coming into the world. I'm like, oh boy, you've got some big energy, right? Like, and um, I just kind of put it all in, in, in taking all of that experience and things that I've personally experienced, even as, as a woman, as someone who, you know, I, I've just, I've been through, I've been through a lot. We all have. And I think mm-hmm. that there's something really relatable about as us, as, as Ngwahua women, um, as Indigenous women, there's, there's a collective and it's not been the most pretty story. Yeah. But you know what? There's this beautiful resilience that's happening that we see that resilience and it's coming from these healed spaces. If we're willing to go there into the dark and to find that healing, we can rise up with this beautiful light. I see and feel 
not just in my life, but I feel it around us with all the women around us. When you can see that people are willing to really invest that time and and go there in those spaces where hurts have happened, not just to us, but to our ancestors. So I've learned in the process of healing that when you heal yourself, you heal your ancestors, mm-hmm. and you heal for those future generations. Mm-hmm. And that's really, for me, what rematriation is about. If you as an individual, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, every human being on this planet carries trauma from all of the wars and the rapes and the killings and the, you know, it's a, equity and inequity. The, yeah. It's been, it's everywhere around the planet, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like if we are willing to investigate and explore and to be there and to embrace that, what we've been through, it's mm-hmm. kind of hard because it is dark and people get scared of it. I was scared of it. I first started doing this work with women. I was invited to be a part of um, a coalition in Aquasasne, Seven Dancers Coalition, and it's centered around very much around sexual assault, domestic violence, and and I thought to myself, trauma. Oh my gosh! Like, you know, I just I started to like backpedal a little bit. Like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. You yeah. know, but I realized that I was scared of facing my own traumas. I'm somebody who was sexually abused as a young girl by a very close relative and, you know, somebody manipulative and using culture, you know, as a way to be able to to get away with that, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that, you know, took a lot of work to overcome that, but it's possible. We were talking about influences in your life and you have relatives that have also been formidable. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people know the Shenandoah Valley, and I lived in the Shenandoah Valley with Mm. not even really knowing what the story was. And there were all kind of stories about what the Shenandoah, what Shenandoah means. <laughs> and it's probably like, none of them no. really related to the truth. I know I've, no. I've heard these crazy stories about, you know, it meaning something about the stars, the stars, you know, for the tribe that used to live here that doesn't live here anymore. They're, They're all gone. Dead. They're all They're dead. dead. And we don't even know what their name is. I'm like, yeah. for real? But there was a princess. No. Princess yeah. and stars. It's, it's just kind of <laughs> crazy. But yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things about this country you know in the united states that i'm speaking of is that um that this the influence that the haudenosaunee had on the founding fathers right those early colonists when they were here and they were forming their states and the formation of the united states is really really heavily influenced by the haudenosaunee there there's just no escaping our our Confederacy had such a large influence on how the Constitution was created. And if people really look into the history, you've got to look beyond your history books that are given to in school, that um, those founding fathers went and they spent time with us. They studied us. They studied our language. They studied our form of governance. And really, Jefferson studied our languages with the attempt to destroy it. So this was his way of cataloging it to be able to preserve it for for them, but to to destroy it for us, right? And um, what most people don't realize is that the way we run our governance within our confederacy is basically how the 
structure of the U.S. Constitution and how they run their government when they have the three different sides of government, that's exactly how we run our government processes by by sending decisions across the fire on those three different three different sides. But looking at what are the values and the principles that are embedded within the democracy, they come from us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people seem to think that, oh, you know, democracy, you know, was, you know, a Greek influence when really, truly it wasn't. It came from us. They were spending a lot of time with us. Washington himself was very much involved in treaty making, mm-hmm. having treaties made, having wampum belt treaties made that he himself initiated. Right. Most people don't understand this. There's a great article on um, longreads.com that talks about Washington lived very much in an Indian world. It's a great article, kind of really points to the fact that, um, you know, the the type of environment that they lived in. Because most people, like, when they look at history, they'll think about, you know, these founding fathers and, and they just lived in this open and, you know, that our people, like, weren't there and mm-hmm. that's that's not true. That's uh, the farthest from the truth and in, in all reality. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, with that, uh, Chief uh, Shenandoah, who was an Oneida, was very instrumental um, in in that relationship mm-hmm. with uh, George Washington. And the Oneidas during the Revolutionary War actually had sided with with the Americans and and. Um, you know, I have a I have a hard time with that history, but I do understand that the influences, uh, the amount of people and pressure that were coming into our territories was so great mm-hmm. that we were sort of really forced in many ways to pick different sides. And reading Laura Cornelius Kellogg, another one of my relatives, I mean, I encourage people to look at her writing, but she presented something in her writing that I hadn't really thought of before, which was that some of our people felt that the way that things were moving and understanding these powerful forces that were coming into our territories, that by aligning with them and helping to share with them our teachings about who we were was also an opportunity for us to spread the message of peace. And I hadn't really thought about that mm-hmm. before. I was like, "Whoa!" But you know, when you look at all the war and everything that was that was behind it, it be, it's it's hard because you know it 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 placed us as Haudenosaunee, like uh, you know us against our own relatives, yeah. and that for me is really hard, mm-hmm. you know. But putting things into context, what was going on in that environment at that time, right? So when you look in where the Shenandoah Valley is today, if you look, the other mountain ranges alongside of it are Franklin, Thomas, you know, Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. and George Washington, right? There, There's these mountain ranges that are named for them, and right alongside that is Shenandoah. Yes. Right? And so Shenandoah was really just like such a strong influence and friend to Washington. Washington had made a promise to the Oneidas that our lands would be forever protected as long as the grass grows and the sky is blue. And, you know, mm-hmm. as the Oneidas, we are the ones over the long haul that have had the biggest land loss, mm-hmm. right? You know, the the U.S. has not upheld its end of its, its treaties, its agreements that it made with us. Um, 
But even after the Revolutionary War and the Americans won, George Washington himself called for a treaty to be made, which is the Treaty of Canandaigua, which called for peace and friendship forever with the Haudenosaunee, because he knew we were a force to be reckoned with. Right. Couldn't get rid of us during, you know, the Sullivan-Clinton campaign that just, we weren't going anywhere. And we were a force to be reckoned with. And that's, you know, that treaty that's still, all of our treaties are still valid today. When you look at the U.S. Constitution, right there it says, treaties are the supreme law of the land. Mm -hmm. Why is that included in the Constitution? It's not an amendment. It's right there up in front because they knew all those relationships and agreements that they had made with our people, they needed to uphold those. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, things were going to get really tough for them. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. supreme to the U.S. Constitution. And I asked the question, how different would people in this country respond if they knew their Constitution had indigenous roots? That's right. Modern democracy around the world has been influenced by the Haudenosaunee, mm -hmm. by our way of life, by our principles of peace, compassion, and yet those some of those very, very principles are not valued in the Constitution or mentioned in the Constitution or even the role of women, right? Yes. Women were excluded. People of color were excluded from the Constitution. And we were not counted in the Constitution because we were our own sovereign nations. And mm. we still are to this day, That's right? right? Mm -hmm. So when people read the Constitution and they don't understand, well, not counted, what does that mean? Because it says Indians not counted. Mm -hmm. And that's why. Because we were our own sovereign nations and they respected us as such. That's and the that treaties, yeah, the treaties yeah. are as such, right? So Shenandoah is one of my ancestors. And, and what that, does it mean? Uh, Shenandoah not, not refers. Of the <laughs> no, no. Shenandoah is like is is you know if you look at the root, it's about Skenandu, which is uh, or Eskanunda, right? Which is uh, the the deer, you know, the deer that's out in the woods, and so that's actually you know the what Shenandoah means is referring to that deer that's out into the woods, but that Shenandoah range, mountain range, that's who that's named after. And that relationship that he had with Washington and looking at the relationship that those founding fathers had and understanding who we were as Haudenosaunee. Um, Benjamin Franklin, you know, was there in, in Albany for the, uh, I believe it's called the Continental Congress, right? And talking about the Haudenosaunee and talking about 50 chiefs and talking about a, con a great confederacy and, and, and all of it's all there. People yeah. just need to be willing to accept that. See, a lot of the country has, in its invisibilization of us, not wanted to look at our influence. Because how could that be? These white men of privilege who wanted to own the land and own the resources, they couldn't acknowledge the fact that, you know, their government was indigenous, you know. That's and right. it's and learning it's, from the savages. Right. Yeah. You know, they're they're and and so that's mm -hmm. that's a big part of history that's missing. In addition to that, what's missing is understanding the influence that our women had on the 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 suffrage movement mm -hmm. in this country, right? And what came around to be, you know, women's rights and the women's movement, understanding that that happened here among our Haudenosaunee Confederacy as well, because these white women who couldn't own land, couldn't own their children's, didn't own their bodies, yeah. couldn't speak their minds, like literally they were treated like cattle, often referred to in the law as chattel. Mm. And everything about them 
their husband owned, Mm -hmm. including their mind, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't have that right to speak. And their their husbands had a right to beat them, to rape them. Mm -hmm. And if they ever left, they didn't even have a right to their children. Mm -hmm. But in our way, right, the women are the ones who have the say over the land, we're the ones who have. Um, uh, we're the ones who. Um, I, I hate to say the word own because it wasn't really about ownership, but they were our longhouses. So if a man married a woman, he would move into the woman's longhouse, mm-hmm. and that meant that he had to be on good terms with. Her mom, her grandma, her right. sisters, her aunties, everybody who, all the women of that clan that live in that longhouse, he had to be on good terms with those women, which means he had to be a man of good standing, mm-hmm. right? And he had to conduct himself as such. And if he didn't, then he had to leave. And all he could leave with was the clothes on his back, mm-hmm. right? That was it. He couldn't leave with the children, right? And but the men have a very different type of responsibility in protecting our people. And I know for some people within the Western context and colonized spaces, they think that that's kind of like a backward way of looking at that men are the protectors and women are in the home. It's not about that at all. It's about understanding that women are life givers and they are the ones who will raise our nations, right? Women are the very first influence on a child. Our bodies are the first environment for our babies, And this is where our children learn, right? All the influence that they have comes from their mother within that first base. And so for the men to be able to protect that, because life is precious, Mm -hmm. right? When a woman is pregnant, you know, or when a baby comes into the world, there's a level of vulnerability. And so to be able to protect Mm -hmm. that and to keep those spaces sacred is important, mm-hmm. right? And that's the role that our men had, right? And and so the, the Europeans became very confused because who they would first interact with was meeting our men because they're out there on the edges, like, you know, protecting and watching. And, and they would also then sometimes, for the most part, be speakers between our nations. And so they thought they were like- The leaders. The leaders, the, yeah. you know, and, and not realizing that the women- had the ultimate say over what would happen to the land. So even our our women would come to the meetings and and they would why are women here? Why are women here, yeah. yeah. And it was the women that were sending the messages through the men. Because they're watching over the families. Yeah. They're watching over the well-being of the clans, of the families mm-hmm. and the land and the all of that provided for us. So that's that I think is is something that becomes that has been lost. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of value in understanding those relationships and how they work and how that can help us in today's space, right? Yeah. As we talk about returning the sacred to the mother, because our ultimate mother is our Mother Earth, mm-hmm. our greatest life giver. And we all have to come to her protection now in honoring that sacred gift of life that she gives to us. Yeah. Well, and an- another relative is Joanne Shenandoah Gaha. Right, who yeah. you lost, and giving the condolences for for that loss, Thank you. and acknowledging um, that influence as well, and just the beauty of who she was. My my aunt, she she was just a precious being of light mm-hmm. that came to this this world to share her gift of her voice, which was really healing, and you know she left just such a wonderful and magnificent legacy 
of the music and through her music she shared she shared so much of our people's teachings in her music mm -hmm. you know so i really encourage people tune in you can still find her music you buy an album or a lot of her music also is on youtube and 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 listen because she really shares about those messages of peace she shares about who we are she shares about you know how to be uh, human beings here on earth and living in accordance to the natural law and living in accordance to the, the great laws of peace that prevail over these territories here and understanding our relationship to each other and how to make things right. And she was the foremost recorded Native American musician. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I knew. And, yeah, she's, and she's she has her. just, like, won, like, numerous awards, yeah. and she won a Grammy, and she was just such a beautiful, beautiful spirit, and it was really just devastating and, and very shocking when she left. I don't think anybody was anticipating that she would be leaving us so mm -hmm. soon, you know, mm -hmm. and it was really hard because even just the month before, and my mom and you know, my aunt and, um, you know, all the relatives, we, we also lost my uncle. So they lost their brother, you know, and then just yeah. right after that, they lost their first cousin. It was a really, really difficult time for, mm -hmm. for our family. And then everybody had a round of COVID that went around the family. And that was just, it was really, really, really challenging, really hard. And, you know, so we're just kind of all really holding each other and, in a space of healing and and to love one another it wasn't easy it really wasn't easy but i think mm -hmm. as even as a family you know has really helped us to decide that you know we have to really pull together to just make sure that we're being responsive to our young ones and to loving them and making sure that you know their future is is set up in a good way so that they carry on in traditions and not to say that we weren't doing that before but I think because of being in these last couple of years of COVID, it was it was so hard to keep that because we're a communal people. Right. You know, we need each other. Being separated from each other and then having this these losses in our family all at once yeah. was really just so hard. And then that, having that illness come through our family. And we're now on the other side. I'm glad that the sun is shining and that mm -hmm. spring is here and COVID seems to be at bay. And I'm, I'm just really looking forward to spending some time with, with our young ones and, and getting out there into the sun and getting our hands into the soil together and, and just loving each other up. We are going to take a short break right now from our visit with Galunyanuas Michelle Shenandoah for a message from our sponsor, our friends at the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul. Come back on the other side as Michelle delves into the details of her trip to the Vatican. I'm Ted Swartz, co-executive director of the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul. We are headquartered in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And at the center, we support and we amplify the voices of artists and other creative thinkers that are working and dreaming on the edges of culture, on the edges of spirituality, which is why we so much appreciate the Auntie's Dandelion and their work through the arts and especially through film and this particular podcast in giving us a deep look into an indigenous worldview that can teach us so much in this particular culture in the U.S., around wholeness, around abundance, and around health. 
And we are especially thrilled with this particular episode of the Anti's Dandelion because it features the powerful Oneida activist, Kalunya Nuwes, Michelle Shenandoah. Yes, that's Shenandoah. And we love and we honor the story of her historic interaction with the Pope at the Vatican, which is where you meet the Pope. Because our organization is also focused on dismantling the pervasive doctrine of discovery that was given to this country so many centuries ago, and we still follow some of its doctrine. It's the root of so much of the racism that is in our country. A theatrical show that we have supported is called We Own This Now, and we are actively doing our best to dismantle this insidious doctrine. And... We are also based in Shenandoah Valley, as I said, which is named for Michelle's ancestor, Oneida Chief John Shenandoah. If you want to learn more about us at the center, you can go to arthumorsoul.com. That is arthumorsoul.com. Friends, you really do need to listen to your aunties. You know, you hear these statistics, Native women, generally there's like, you know, one in five women will experience, you know, sexual assault, or I think that's like a general national statistic. I'm trying to remember what the Native one is. It's higher. Yes. And every time I hear it, I'm like, you know what? I actually think it's higher than that. It's rampant and it comes from these residential schools. There's no doubt about it. And um, mm -hmm. I know that there are survivors in, in Canada who are now like in their 60s. And, and that's still relatively young. You know, here on the state side, some of the survivors have, have since passed on because the schools closed at different times. But mm -hmm. that kind of violence, it's a cycle, and it makes its way into the communities and it exists to this day. It's not just the sexual assault, but it's it's the violence, it's the domestic violence, yeah. it's the lateral violence, you know, among mm -hmm. each other. I mean, colonization and the residential schools being a part of that. I mean, all these policies and laws that were designed to take everything away from us. Mm -hmm. It's been devastating, right? It's been devastating. And it takes all of us to work through that. I think we have to acknowledge the shame, right? That colonization and these residential schools, what that did is like, even though maybe not 100% of our people went to residential schools during the times that the schools were open, the percentage that went through is still like the, it, it's like you kind of think about the ripple effect, right? So for every one person that went and returned back to our community, they eventually had families of their own. And, you know, they had kids and those kids had kids and those kids married with other families. And in just that, that energy that it carries, it, it ripples, right? So it ends up impacting all of us. Yeah. There isn't a single indigenous person here on Turtle Island that is not impacted by residential schools mm -hmm. and all of the abuses that were inflicted upon our people. And, but with that was a huge amount of shame, mm -hmm. right? You know, being shamed for being Indian, right? Yeah. And, and that was like really like beaten out of the kids. This was beaten out of them to feel that that's dirty. That's it's, it's not a good way to be. And, and so that kind of shame carried throughout. So in spaces within our communities where culture was um, kept and many times, you know, kept underground through all of that, right? Yeah. Those 
people who were culture carriers and bearers through those times, you know, they kept it underground. We've heard stories about our people when uh, they knew that there was traditional leaders within the community, that their houses would be ransacked. They would get beat up by the governments, U.S. and Canadian governments. They would be attacked. And so there was just this real... Um, movement to to keep that quiet. And so as, as it became more safe to allow that to come out, now a lot of our own people were shaming some of our own culture right. bearers, right, for, for showing that. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, they persisted. And, and how, I don't want to say fortunate, mm-hmm. you know, because it's hard to think about what they went through. Yeah. But we're really, really lucky that they still carried on in that strength and that we're able to still receive that knowledge and understand those ways of life today. Yeah. And and now you can see this total resurgence of who we are and, you know, embracing our languages and embracing our ceremonies. And it's, you can see the younger people are just stepping into it. Yeah. And they're just so proud and so happy to do so. And in so many ways, they're being born free of that, all those layers of of trauma. And now we have to recognize as adults and as parents, we have to break that cycle so that we don't give that to them. Right. Right. Because we just have to recognize that responsibility. Right. I know they, you know, we talk about intergenerational trauma being carried in the DNA, but I think there's so much healing work going on. And when you begin to understand the healing work, you recognize it's not just you, but it impacts all those around you. And I think that the children that are coming into that space, like they're, they're being set free from that Mm. because of all that healing work that has been being done by our people and a lot by our women, right? To to be free from that. And mm-hmm. so now it's just our own behavior. <laughs> we have to, to change that, right? So things like lateral violence or sexual assault or addictions or any of those things, we don't give to the kids. And then it's unfortunate because some people are seeing this time, if they're not grounding themselves in some way, that it's it's really hard. Some people are not able to have spent this time in isolation mm-hmm. with themselves. It's kind of scary, mm-hmm. right, to spend time by yourself if you're really not mentally prepared for it. And and that's that's been really really hard for people, you know, to have all that loss. You know, when you can begin to understand this is part of our mother earth cleansing herself yeah that this is this is part of it's it is hard but we just have to trust our relatives will be there on the other side waiting for us too well and as you're talking it does seem to be like every single thing you've been involved with we've talked about the law and your understanding of the doctrine of discovery and missing and murdered indigenous women and the pandemic um, and ways to interrupt that culture. How do we step in and interrupt that culture really does lead to your recent trip to the Vatican. And can you describe that story and how you did meet with the Pope and offered him a gesture and a symbol that for me just was so powerful. But can you talk about how that began, how you got involved with that, and then 
you know, your trip and and what happened there? I got a text message out of the blue <laughs> from uh, from from Mama Bear, and it said, "Would you like to go to Rome next week and meet with the Pope?" Oh <laughs> I looked at the text like, "What? What? <laughs> Say what now?" You know, but coming from her, I was like, you know, okay, is she kidding? Is she for real? Like, what is this? You know, because we get all kinds of invitations. She's got all kinds of people who approach her for all sorts of things and approach myself and my husband. You know, there's always there's always something, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. is it a joke? Is she for real? Like, what is this, right? You know, it felt kind of like a joke, but I, I also knew that there was probably some very seriousness to it. So called her up right away. <laughs> And uh, discovered, yeah, she's for real, right? Um, She got an invitation to go as a female spiritual advisor to a Canadian delegation uh, that was uh, the Assembly of First Nations and uh, the Catholic Bishops of Canada were working together to bring these actually three different delegations over to meet with the Pope and to have a private audience with him and to address the horrors that were unfolding regarding all of these unmarked graves of, of Indigenous children um, throughout Canada yeah. um, that were run at these Catholic residential schools. Yeah. And to go over there, address the Pope, have a private audience with him, and... Um, like, again, you know, I've said earlier, you know, residential schools affected everybody. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter whether they are run by the Catholics or some other sect of Christianity or run by the governments, yeah. uh, you know, by the armies. And because all that happened, yeah. it, it didn't matter. It's like it's, just, it's impacted all of us. And because we do a lot of work together um, in that common space of, of healing and bringing forward the truth and and bringing our women's perspective into that, I I, I said yes, right? Mm -hmm. There was no hesitation. There there was no thinking about it. Of course I'll go. Yeah. Um, She asked myself um, and Gudgie Juni Fox to go. And at first she wanted to send a a man and a woman together, um, but we heard back, no, they wanted women. Mm. They wanted that perspective and spiritual advisement from from our people Mm -hmm. and looking at Haudenosaunee representation. So the invitation came to her, but she wasn't able to go. So we went. Wow. And it was decided that I would speak. I would be the one to actually go in and, and talk to the Pope. And so I connected with um, the uh, the male spiritual advisor, who's Elder Fred Kelly, who um, is a Shnabe and... Um, who is uh, part of the Medewin Society. Mm-hmm. And um, I was soon talking with him on a call. He was really grateful that we were going. And um, I became, uh, you know, we were all part of this delegation, and I became the delegate who would go in and, and talk to the Pope. And, and um, you know, we, we talked also then with one of the other Catholic bishops who was helping to organize the space and with the Pope. And, and they really wanted uh, us to focus in on, on the invocation uh, for our, our time in there with him. And uh, we decided then, in our way, we usually have an opening, we have a closing. And so we decided to split that responsibility. Mm-hmm. So Elder Fred Kelly would, would do the, the opening invocation in, uh, in a pipe ceremony. And I would then uh, do the closing. Mm. 
So, um, you know, just, just to kind of give a really like kind of breakout of what it all looked like is we were there for, for the week and there were three delegations that went in. There was a Métis delegation, mm-hmm. an Inuit delegation, and a First Nations delegation. And from what I understand, I do believe um, it, it may have been on the part of the Catholic uh, bishops who kind of made those designations, kind of based on where you know all the churches and the schools were and those kinds of things, because as indigenous people going, we're just kind of like, well, we don't categorize ourselves in this in this sort of way, right? right. Um, but, you know, I, we were invited very, very last minute. Uh, we had 10 days before <laughs> leaving be. for this when they had been preparing for months. But I guess yeah. really what they saw was that they needed to bring that balance of that woman energy, female energy into the space. And so they had the one male spiritual advisor and wanted a female spiritual advisor. Mm-hmm. So Gaji Juni Fox and I went over and we we shared in that responsibility throughout mm-hmm. the week and and you know every morning you know being there in sunrise ceremony and sharing in sharing in song and sharing in our teachings and you know just being uh, really very present especially the day that we left to you know go address the Pope and you know providing uh, an opening and and just providing those those good words and and um, so. The first two delegations of the Métis and Inuit, they went in very early in the week on Monday, and our delegation would go in to meet with the Pope on Thursday. And then on Friday, there would be a general assembly where we would all come together, and then they had what they called a secondary delegation, which was about, I don't know, I think altogether there was about 180 people. And so that when you put the secondary delegation with the small delegations that went in to meet with the Pope, so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's about 180 indigenous people over there in Rome who would all come together on that Friday to actually hear from the Pope, you know, when he delivered this apology. Nobody knew there would be an apology, number okay, one. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So we just knew that the Pope would address everybody, you know, based on what he heard throughout the week. And the point of the delegation before you knew that there was going to be apology is to address the Pope and yeah. the Catholic Church about residential schools and say what you wanted to say. Right, exactly. So in those private audiences, you know, we don't know what was shared by the other delegations with the Pope. They went in to go share their experiences, and it was all centered around the residential schools. Um, So for us in our delegation, uh, throughout the week, you know, we met, you know, we addressed, we we got to all share what we would be saying to the Pope. Uh, You know, we talked about what it would, you know, doing uh, media with, you know, after meeting with him and what those statements would be out to the media and all, you know, it was just, it was, it was a very jam-packed week. You know, it just, it was very, very full. And to start 10 days before on your part, it's like, oh, yeah. Well, so before I knew I was doing any kind of closing, and I had to really sort of think about well, what am I saying, you know, and, and knowing this legal perspective that I had and knowing the doctrine of discovery and, you know, just all of the harm that it's caused. It's, 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 it's not even just harm. It's a genocide. It's committed genocide on our people, you know, for more than 500 years. And I had to address it. Yeah. There was just no way not to address it. 
And so, you know, kind of all week, you know, I was like writing things down as I'm trying to figure out my passport and get right. that worked out. Because my passport was valid, but just FYI, in case you all don't know, you're, it has to be valid six months beyond the time you're traveling. Oh, it does? So, yeah. But it, before six months of expiring, make sure you renew your passport because I had to like jump through a ton of hoops to get my passport renewed. So, okay. so you had to do this. All of these super logistical things as well. Oh yeah, as <laughs> explore an incredibly oh. spiritual space. And then, and then you know, saying, "Okay, gosh, what am what am I gonna say?" Right. Yeah. And um, so I started, you know, constructing it. It wasn't, you know, as as I'm writing, you know, I'm just like kind of, you know, I carry my phone and put my notes in there all the time. So I'm like, you know, writing this and writing that and writing this. And it wasn't until we got to a point where, you know, we're talking with you know, Elder Fred Kelly and, you know, the, the other, you know, um, uh, Catholic bishop, uh, who was on the phone and we're talking about our time, you know, in that private audience when, you know, I, I said I would do the closing. I opened up and, you know, on my own and talking to my ancestors and those little ones who had left in mm. such awful ways that just tell me, tell me what it is to say. Yeah. And, Right. Once I knew I was doing the closing, it was like instantly, you know, during the middle of the night, woke up at 2 a.m. and it just came in just like a, the a whole flood thing, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing. I just captured it, wrote, 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 mm-hmm. literally, you know, on my phone with my two little thumbs, just <laughs> putting it all in, putting it all, put it in. And um, uh, pretty much I never changed much of it at all. You know, I, I shared it with uh, Mama Bear to, you know, get her input. She's just like, wow, mm. you know, just, okay, yes, that's that's it. Go with it, you know. And then I also shared it with our Haudenosaunee Confederacy's External Relations Committee because, um, you know, they've been doing a lot of work on on having the these papal bulls that, that contain the doctrine of discovery to have that revoked and i wanted to make sure you know number one you all know what we're doing right. you know what's been asked because they have and, all this pre-work yeah, right yeah mm-hmm. and also you know here's the words i'm sharing mm-hmm. and I, I i want your your input right and so i did i i heard all i shared it with them i, I they gave me all kinds of different feedback and I, mm-hmm. you know, made adjustments. But again, it still didn't really change the nature dramatically. It was still the same. And and that's what I went in with. And um, um, that's that's what I, <laughs> I you know, it, it was never once did I feel overwhelmed, intimidated. I had visited the Vatican before, like years ago when I, I spent a summer in, in Italy um, so I knew what was there, right? I mean, it's just opulence from floor to ceiling. Yeah. Every single inch is just gold, covered gold, in gold, gold. wealth. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just, it's crazy. But nonetheless, um, you know, the, the day that we actually went in to go see the Pope, I just, I knew I'm, I'm there to fulfill this purpose. I had a job to do and we were very on task and we tried to have a little bit of fun while we're in Italy. We went one day up to Florence and very quickly our trip was cut short. We kept trying to have some nice, you know, fine Italian food or something and we couldn't find good food. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) I was like, I just really think that we're just being reminded we're here to, for a purpose. Yeah. 
We have to fulfill this reason that we're here. We're here for business and that's it. This one's not a vacay. This one's not for fun. This, this, we're literally being reminded, stay on task, stay focused. And that's what we did, mm-hmm. right? And um, so we were afforded one or two decent meals. And <laughs> it really <laughs> seems like that. It's just obvious you, you're not leading with your ego. If that's, if you can go in and stay calm, I'm glad for the way this story has unfolded because it's all this preparation that you've had for this moment. Throughout my lifetime. Exactly. Throughout my lifetime. And even thinking about going to meet him, I know he's a man. Mm-hmm. He's an elder. He's fulfilling a role for for this church, for the Vatican, for the city, the Vatican. And, and I understand that he has influence around the world. And a lot of people had many different reactions to this delegation going. And all of them are valid, right? There's so much pain. There's so much trauma. There's also so much work being done to move things forward on a legal perspective for our people. And every single response is correct. Hmm. Whether people were angry or outraged or people just didn't mm-hmm. care or people felt like the apology was meaningless and or they reject the apology or they mm. are excited by the apology or whatever. Every single reaction is valid. We're all in different spaces of our own level of healing from all of this trauma or our own levels of colonization or our own levels of being steeped within our own traditions. So we just have to acknowledge that and embrace each other. That's right? massive. Holy. And that's okay. That's the thing. There's, there, there is really no one right way, right? I mean, we're millions of people, we're millions of indigenous people here on Turtle Island who've all been impacted by this. And some of us are still working through the traumas and some of us have been lucky to heal through the traumas and it's okay. We just have to be gentle with each other as people. Mm. Like, let's be gentle with each other mm-hmm. and be a little bit more harder against the system than we are on, on each other. the institutions, other. yes. Yeah, right. the institution. Be mm-hmm. harder on those upholding those institutions yeah. that are not our own people, right. right? You know, because we do know that some of our own people do work in these institutions mm-hmm. and that's okay too, right? Like, just like, let's stop being so hard on each other and be harder on the system to say no, enough. And that's what I felt for what this delegation did. So the delegation that I went into, there was 15 of us all together and they were, a lot of them were chiefs within the Assembly of First Nations. A lot of them were elders. And I got to tell you, for me, I was really, really moved because there are some elders who came so far, all the way over there on the western side of Canada and had to fly all the way over to Montreal or mm-hmm. Toronto, whichever airport they were leaving from, mm-hmm. and then fly all the way across the ocean over to Rome. And I mean, that's tough on me and I'm looking at these elders who they went there and they they just spoke for everybody they were survivors themselves and then they stood up to not only just share a little bit of their own story just a little bit even if it was just to say I'm a survivor but then they spoke about all the impacts that have happened to our people from the impacts on our families the impacts on our nations and how that's led to whether it's traumas and abuses today and, and looking at overcoming them. And then 
some of the younger chiefs that were there, they addressed the reparations that the church in Canada, what they're calling for from, mm-hmm. from them. And then there were two younger women that were youth delegates, and they were there representing one of the chiefs from from the uh, from the Assembly of First Nations. But they also put their words and their heart and their energy into it, too. And I was so proud of them because mm-hmm. they just were so powerful and strong in their messages to the Pope. You know, the Pope and the Catholic Church has so much influence around the world. And so all those words that were spoken there that day, I mean, you could feel all the power, all of our ancestors and all those children, like they were with us. You could just feel like that that protection energy that was just around us and that mm-hmm. that healing energy that was meant to be just pushed straight in there into the space, right? Like it was it was palpable. You could feel it in the room and the, you know, these big, really tall, high ceilings had these really big windows and the windows were open. And it had been like rainy and gray mm. pretty much all week. And then that day when we're going in, the rain was coming down lightly and but just cleansing our path. And then when we were in and, you know, the elders that, that started speaking, the sun started to come out. And there's just like this beam of sun coming into the room. And then as the elders were speaking, all of a sudden, you know, out in St. Peter's Square, you could hear off in the distance, you could hear our own people singing, right? You could hear these coastal singers that this really deep resonating voice that was just coming through and the drums and you could hear it. Really? When you were inside, I can't stop crying. No, and it, trust me, it gripped me when I was in there. It was like, it made me want to cry in that moment. It wasn't a moment for tears. Yeah. You know, we were kind of in, kind of in this sort of like a circle almost, but it was, I looked and I saw all the women who were sitting all to the right of me, because I'm on the very end, I'm the last speaker, and every single woman was sitting tall and proud, and we are here, and you hear us, and these are the words that come from our people, generations of our people, right? And it was so powerful. You could feel like all the tobacco that had been put down for us, all the the tobacco that had been smoked in the pipes and the prayers of all the people. You could feel it with us. It was just powerful because everybody knew that we were there <laughs> making me cry too sorry, like stop crying. you know and then the music started coming in and then you could hear like one of the the western drums you know started singing the songs that come off of the planes like you could hear that and it was just like wow like they all know that we're in here what we're doing right now and it's like I'm sorry now I'm getting <laughs> yeah, emotional but yeah. this was the part that got me because I knew oh, yeah. we weren't alone yes. we were there with everybody like it just you could feel it it was so powerful and then a big wind just came into the room and it was like even all of the sun the wind right the natural the ancestors, world sisters you know that's everybody, the promise right everybody was there with us you know yeah. the, our people that were outside the songs came in and it just it flooded the room even though you could hear it off in the distance you couldn't not hear it just like the windows God. were open like that blows my mind. And then someone came and shut the windows. <laughs> and I was just like, Come okay. <laughs> but nonetheless, I, I came in there with with a cradle board. And everything was very scripted. 
everything was very scripted. And as I've come to understand with the Catholic Church, everything is scripted. There's no room for spontaneity. There's really not a lot of room for, you know, being off script at all. Everything is orchestrated. No Mm -hmm. surprises. Everything's orchestrated. And I came in, because we came in at the last minute, my speech wasn't really heard or known until we were already there in Italy. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh my gosh, like, you know, what's <laughs> this going to go down? And what was contained in that speech? And explain well, like, why you in that speech was really just bringing to light that the fact that these papal bulls were created right there. Right there. That's the source. And they still exist. And the impacts on our people, right? To address that doctrine of discovery. I've also learned prior to going in with the Pope, learning from you know some of the cardinals that are there and who are his direct advisors, I had a chance to talk with them. I also learned that the, the Pope and the Vatican has tried to distance themselves from the doctrine of discovery, saying that they spoke out about it in the past. Is that right? And now that it's these colonizing nations, that they're the ones who are doing what they want with it, but it doesn't matter. Right. Because until they revoke it and repudiate it and tell these colonizing nations around the world, you can't rely upon this as law anymore. Right. Not They're going to continue to keep doing it, right? So right. here I am at, at the source of where it came from, and that's what I addressed. And I addressed how it impacted our people from our women going missing and murdered to our families mm-hmm. being broken up and experiencing these losses and these these harms and the societal ills and how it impacts our men and how, you know, we deserve to be families like everyone else around the world, mm. right? And to be free from this enslavement of this perspective because it holds people, it enslaves people around the world in their perspective and how they see us, whether it's conscious or unconscious, because it's embedded into the fabric of all the laws, all the education, and how people behave. So they are enslaved by it and how they treat us. And until the church comes forward, the Pope comes forward and says, you know what, this needs to be undone because this is the harm it's caused. The world won't see it, right? We're speaking about it. We're talking about it. And here I am telling the Pope about it. You have to undo it. Yeah. You know, it's allowed peoples around the world to, you know, I said to view us, to rape us, to murder us, to invisibilize us. And that has to change. The time is now. You know, and so with that, I also brought in a cradle board with me. I wore the cradle board on my back and it was it was empty. And that was the point, you know, that cradle board I brought in as being symbolic of every child who went to residential school, who was taken away from their family and to understand the impacts of on all those children and all of our families. And then also for him to recognize all those children's spirits, all their, you know, that were lost, recognizing every single child that died, you know, in these schools. And for him, I left that, I left it there. It was not a gift. <laughs> it was not a gift. I brought it as an opportunity for him to reflect upon 
all those impacts on our people and what that would be like as a mother to have your child taken away, Yeah, right? To have your children taken away from our families, from our nations, from our communities. And for him to, to have a visual right there with him, right? Empty. And empty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to come back to get this cradle board tomorrow to bring our children home. So, you know, as, as I'm as I'm giving him this this speech, you know, he was very attentive, mm-hmm. you know, paying attention. We had full on eye contact. Oh I'm talking gosh. to him and sharing these words with him. I'm pointing to the cradle board, and from what I understand, the Pope, you know, understands English. So, you know, he also had a translator there, but he wasn't translating in real time, right? So the Pope's listening to everybody and he seems, you know, attentive and, you know, um, and at the end, after these two young women just really came in so powerful, it really like woke up his energy. And so now he's listening to me and I'm the last speaker. And here I am with this cradle board, right? Like it's a clear visual and I'm talking to him, you know, here's this cradle board and, and this is what I'm doing. And so, you know, then uh, the Pope then gave a, um, um, a, a response to all of us being in there. And it was all read, all of it. He read the whole thing. It was, a, you know, something prescripted. And, you know, I heard him mention something about colonization and, you know, harm and those kinds of things. And then he went off script. Mm-hmm. And he looked right at me and he looked at the cradle board and he said something about babies. And, you know, I don't really know because he was speaking in Italian. Yeah. And then um, his translator then, you know, told us all what he had said. And, uh, but, you know, read what was already prescripted. And then he had to try to kind of put into words what the Pope had said. And he was addressing families and children. And so while he didn't actually say cradle board, the Pope in his body language, you know, was like intimating, pointing to the cradle board, talking about children. Yeah. And so once we were all closing up and I I brought the cradle board to reflect on this, I saw his face light up and I was thinking to myself, oh, geez, maybe he thinks this is a gift. I yeah. need to be really clear. Oh my God, Michelle. So, you know, as I'm, I'm handing this over to him, I said, this is for a point of reflection on all of our children that were lost and impacted by these schools. And I will be back to retrieve this board tomorrow. And so the moment moved and everybody's like, you know, taking their moment to kind of, they're they're sort of really moving everybody along because now, you know, there's a table full of gifts and people brought things, you know, for the Pope to to bless because some of the the delegation that were there are are Catholic, Catholic, right? And so even though they, everybody spoke their truth, there was no holding back, right? So, I mean, but everybody was respectful. Remembering, you know, you're in someone's house and you can't go in and, go blow up the house and expect to be invited back, right? I mean, everybody mm-hmm. was respectful, but everybody spoke their truth. Mm-hmm. As hard as it may have been, it wasn't that hard for everybody because that's what happened to our people. Right. And now it's time to change that. And I brought a letter from our external relations committee for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and mm-hmm. and I, I brought a letter they asked me to deliver. And I said, it would be my honor to share that. This is the work that they're doing, and and... Whenever in any way that I can help, it's an honor to do so. And so I left that along with a little wooden cradle board that my mother sent along oh. as a reminder to them 
so they wouldn't forget. Oh my gosh. You were left with that cradle board. And I think the the thing that really, and I put it all in perspective and had an opportunity to reflect, I did say the way you treat this cradle board will be the way that you come to treat our people in the future, right? Because the way we treat our children in these cradle boards, this is a place of protection, of security, hanging them, you know, on the wall so that they're eye level with us, so they feel included and they're they're part of who we are. They're you know, I shared, yeah, yeah, I shared that with them. And the next day when we all met for the general assembly, I walk in and and I don't see a cradle board in sight. Everything's mm-hmm. all set up, everything's ready to go, right? And and everything's so super orchestrated there. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. And all of the Canadian Catholic bishops were there, and I went up to them immediately, and I said, mm-hmm. where, where, where is the cradle board? Yeah. You know, I came here for the cradle board today. Does the Pope know that I'm, I came here to retrieve that? It's not a gift. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, we, we understand that it will be returned. Uh, we don't think it will be part of the General Assembly, but we don't know how yet it will be returned. Okay. <laughs> And what up with that? <laughs> so I go take my seat, right? Mm-hmm. And everything begins. And today the, the Pope seems a little more uh, not as hospitable, sort of, so to say. You know, mm-hmm. we're all there. Tons of pomp and circumstance. And now there's a room full of like almost 200 indigenous people all there listening. And, and we were all given these little pamphlets. And in it was a lot of writing and from the Pope, but not realizing, okay, this is going to be his speech or that there's an apology in there. No clue, right? Because you got to wow. really sort of like read through it and everything begins, right? So it all begins. So we all sit down and they had uh, uh, each of the delegations open for the First Nations. It did a really very traditional opening with a pipe ceremony. And mm-hmm. this time, you know, as, as the elders going around and, and having each of them touch the pipe stem, this time the Pope, instead of being very sort of gracious about it, this time just kind of like, you know, seemed kind of a little more irritated and just kind of like tapped it almost away. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, some of the other delegation, they opened and, and said a Catholic prayer in their in their language and then they had cultural performances by each of the delegations and then I never really personally like that myself because I always feel like it's performative theater for the Pope or whomever and yeah but at the same time I'm also like well and we're also still here I was just I I was kind of starting to feel like mm, yeah you know what are we doing right? now? yeah mm-hmm. so I'm I'm listening and then the Pope uh, gives his speech and it's all in Italian right I have no clue what he's saying and nor do I even know that an apology is being given at that moment, right? So then he gives an olive branch, one to each of the three delegations. And then he stands up and says to everybody, pray for me because I will pray for you. Goodbye. Uh-huh. And exits left. <laughs> Literally, like exits left and he's out. And I was like, wow, that was really abrupt and odd, you know. And But my immediate thought as soon as that was, he he walked out, I'm like, okay, where's the cradle board? Yes. I'm not leaving here without it. Yeah. Right. And there's other delegates and those who were supporting the delegation. They knew that cradle board is leaving with with us us. today, leaving with me. I'm going to have it on, strapped on my back when I leave here. I'm standing there. I'm sort of like looking around. Okay. What's going to happen now? You know, where's, where, now what? Right. 
And so everybody is getting up out of their chairs, taking pictures, getting ready to leave. There's all this just kind of chaos. If you can imagine a room full of a couple hundred people and, and the event's over. The event's over. Let me just say that, okay. right? The event is over. And now I see one of the Canadian Catholic bishops walking out of the room that the Pope just exited from. And he's walking across the room. And he has the cradle board and a shopping bag. <laughs> I am laughing because it's so absurd. And I, you know, I have, because of the same feeling, I had to take a picture of it because I, I did needed. You? I did. Yeah. I yeah. needed to say, look, look, you know, it's not just me who sees this. You have to see this. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I you was, had just and said I was, how you treat the cradle board is how you're treating our people. So what does that say to you? Right. The event's over. Right. It's over. The Pope didn't even give it back. Yes. Right? Yes. So now here's the Canadian bishop traveling across the sea of people. You can interpret that however you like. Traveling mm-hmm. back across the sea. Right. And now he walks over. He's motioning me over with his hand. You're like, come on, come on, come on over. He's lining up now with all the other Canadian Catholic bishops that are there. And so meanwhile, I'm looking for my sister, Gudgie Juni, in the room going, okay, Gudgie Juni, where are you? Like, there, this is happening right now. And, and, and she had stepped out of the room. And no. so I was like, hey, can you go find Gudgie Juni? So I sent some people to go look for her. But meanwhile, like, it happened, right? So next thing you know, they're trying to present the cradle board back to me. And I hesitated. I didn't just take it because I'm like, okay, no, this is a moment. We're going to go through this moment very carefully. Yes. You know, is handing the cradle board back and says, the Pope uh, spent the evening with the cradle board and he spent the evening in, in meditation and has asked to see the cradle board again when he comes to Canada. And I knew immediately, okay, Michelle, there's moments here where you have to share certain messages yeah. from our people, from my own perspective, things need to be said. Yeah. And this was one of them. As he, he's telling me, he wants to see it again. And I said, great. Because then the clan mother who sent this can have direct words with the Pope. Mm-hmm. She can bring it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just imagining in my mind, Louise having words with the Pope. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but then I let him know that also our Haudenosaunee leadership has been seeking an audience with the Pope to revoke the doctrine of discovery. Mm -hmm. And I said, that doctrine of discovery has to be revoked. The papal bulls that contain the doctrine of discovery, they have to be revoked and repudiated. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we can have those conversations when we get back to Canada. And I said, great. So you're willing to meet with our leadership when you get back to Canada? Oh, yes, yes. You know, Mm -hmm. we'll meet with them. I said, okay. Right. So as he's handing me back the cradle board, because those words need to be held accountable for. They made that agreement. So I'm telling indigenous leaders, like, call on them to to have Mm -hmm. those meetings, to have those conversations. And as he's then handing me the cradle board, now I'm like, okay, now I've said what I had to say. I'll take this back. And as he's handing it back, I looked at him and I said, just know this is us taking our children back home. And then he says, as he's like trying to then bless the cradle board, he says, and with a little bit of us in there, and he went to, you know, bless the cradle board. And I said, 
please understand and respect. We have our ways and you have yours. Oh my goodness. So I kind of like stepped away. So now I'm taking the cradle board and I'm going to put it on my back. I have two straps on there to put it on. And he says, oh, can I help you with this? And I said, no. Yeah. I said, we as indigenous women, we're strong. <laughs> and I put it on my back and I just said, thank you. And I walked away. And I was really having a hard time in yeah. that moment yeah. for all of how that went down. Interpret from your perspective bringing the cradle board in in a shopping bag. I've had time to really think about it. And for me, I have, I have a few thoughts on it. You know, the first thing I thought was that they don't understand the level of respect that we have for our children and the care and consideration that we have or the care or consideration that came in bringing the cradle board. From what I understand, you know, that was a, a very mo moving moment, if you will. It did have impact on the mm -hmm. Pope. I was there. I saw his reaction to it. I mean, yeah. it was something that maybe delighted him and maybe learning it wasn't a gift. Yeah. I don't know. Was How he... many people have not given the Pope a gift in that way, in the way that you, you know, did? Was he upset that he had to return it? I yeah. don't really understand. I don't, I, I can't pretend to know what they were thinking or feeling, but wouldn't yeah. it have been so different to return the cradle board during the General Assembly? From the Pope to you. From the Pope. The way you requested. How different would that be, right? The level of care or consideration or thoughtfulness. Yeah. So different. And it wasn't, nor was it even addressed by the Pope and the General Assembly, like, okay, and you know, this is going to happen. None of that. It was like, oh, okay, oh yeah, it's over there in the bag here. You is know. it like a paper? Like, I need it's, a visual of this. Yeah, like a paper it's shopping like a, bag? a paper, a white, big white paper oh, shopping bag. My, like, that's what came to my mind. And yeah. And, That's and, what it was. and here he is, you know, walking into the room, walking across the room with it. And, you know, to me, it's kind of almost like I, I kind of think, was it like the Pope sending back the issue across to Canada? And here's the Canadian bishop traveling across. You know, I called it a sea of people for a reason. Yes. You know, it's like a, going back across the ocean to Canada to say, here, OK, you deal with this now. And just really put that responsibility on the, the Catholic bishops to now be the ones to handle that. The, those conversations, you know, do happen with the Catholic bishops regarding his upcoming trip, but th that's not the point. No. <laughs> it's how how it was treated. Yeah. And for me, that that's so telling. I think people can interpret for themselves. That's right. You know, what they think about that. Yeah. And then when we came out and, you know, we went and we met... Um, we walked out onto St. Peter's Square, and here's all those, all of all of our relatives mm -hmm. who traveled. You know, those who were part of like the the secondary delegation they called it, and they're mm -hmm. all outside and they're singing, <laughs> and they were like waiting for us, and it just felt like okay, we did what we came here for. But wasn't for me, it wasn't even about that apology on Friday. I didn't go for an apology. I went there to go share those words inside those walls and let that vibration of our truth to be heard, for that to be in that space. Yeah. And that's what we did. We came out, like our people were there, like our own people were there to greet us and they greeted us with song and it was so hard. It yeah. was really hard not to cry, you know, and 
you at the moment you get teary eyed, then all of a sudden I get teary eyed, you know, and that was the thing is I just didn't really even want to break down and cry. But for me to be greeted by our own people, that's the part that made me cry. Yeah. And next thing you know, then we're in front of the, all this media cameras and yeah. <laughs> it was just oh, like, wow. it was so wild, you yeah. know, but I was, yeah. I was just still trying to process all of that myself and you know, I walked away from there not even realizing the Pope had gave an apology, yeah. you know, because it wasn't even about that. It was like, how are you going to behave as a human being? All these nations of people who are before you and all the people they represent and all the people who aren't here, are you going to make things right? For me, that was the question. And then all of a sudden, I hear smoke dancing, you know, smoke dance song. And I was like, whoa, like what? Some of our own people are here, right? And I looked and there was two men who were, they were singing and and one of them, you know, well, one was singing and the other one, he was dancing and two men from Six Nations. And they were part of this like secondary delegation that came, you know, that were, you know, they had singers and dancers and with them and that's that's what they came to do and that's what they did. And so... Um, they sang a woman's dance song for me, and I did a woman's dance right there all by myself, <laughs> you know, in, in St. Peter's Square. And for me, that was putting down that vibration of our women and mm-hmm. our families and for our babies and mm-hmm. for our future and just letting that vibration just to continue to reverberate out for all of our words and all of our people. And, um, you know... Yeah. Our traditional midwife, you know, elder that was there, she said that, you know, what was what was done here was like the weaving of a web within the space of the Vatican and all of the words and the prayers and the dances and all those actions, all that went into that. Everything is reverberating on that spider web. And it will continue to reverberate within the halls and the walls of the Vatican and, you know, with all those who are there. And I I see that and I feel that, you know, that energy was laid down right there at the source for all of this harm that has come to our people here in Turtle Island. Everyone wonders, like, what's the good mind? Like, what actually is the good mind? And it is the fact that you've been on this journey, you go, you don't bring the fear, you don't bring the typical, uh, in the face of this institution, you're not bringing what they want you to bring. <laughs> you know, that's what all that gold is about, is to intimidate. Uh, and I just want to say, what you know, greetings, love, and respect for you and all who were involved in this, to stay in that space where people ideas, our philosophy, our, our world um, can speak through you. So, Nyawa. Nyawa Goa. Nyawa for having me here. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Nyawa.